0: Bible Books in 30 Minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner.
1: This conversation is going to focus on the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Now, again, Mike, explain
0: who the Corinthians were and what we know about them. Corinthians, the Christians who lived in the Greek city of Corinth. Okay, so what do we know about it? Well, the church in Corinth had actually been established by Paul himself around about 51 AD on his second missionary journey. We read all about that in Acts chapter 18. And he had stayed with the church uh, an unusually long time, 18 months with them. So it was a church that had had really good foundations. And in a sense, that perhaps makes this letter all the more scary because it had had such good foundations, but then things that started to go pear shaped when he had moved on from them. And so he's writing this letter three or four years later to them, around 54, 55 AD, to deal with some of the problems uh, that had arisen in the church. Some of them he'd heard about through reports, others he had written back to them. And I suppose. The obvious question is, why did it take him so long then uh, to write? Well, what we can work out from the letter is that actually this wasn't the first letter he'd written. He actually says in the letter at one point, now I wrote to you saying this and you think, hang on, where's that? And the truth is, it looks like there was a first Corinthians that is now lost. So first Corinthians is actually second Corinthians. And then he wrote another letter that we don't have. That's referred to in what we call two Corinthians, which is really four Corinthians. In other words, he had to do an awful lot of writing to this church. They really had got themselves in a mess.
1: And we say church, but I think from what you said in a previous episode, this is actually a, a group of, of believers in Christ that are meeting in this, in this city of Corinth. Now, what, what was that like? What is Corinth like at that time?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's good to put that in there again. Let's not think whenever we talk about church in, in any of these episodes where we're looking at these letters of a great big bunch of people who met in a particular building, church is still very much meeting in homes in the city. So what is this city of Corinth like? Well, it is a pretty big and a pretty important city. Uh, scholars sort of disagree in their estimates of how big a city it was. The lowest estimate is about 200,000, uh, but others put it as high as 650,000 for the city and, and the area immediately around them. And it was situated on that really narrow strip of land between mainland Greece and and what's called the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is the bit with like fingers sticking out at the bottom of Greece. It's almost an island, but not quite. It's got this narrow strip of land linking it to the mainland. And Corinth sat on that. So that tells you immediately it was an important city. It was strategic. It actually had two ports, uh, one to its east, one to its west. And they'd even built a tramway, between the two ports so that ships could come in on the one side, the goods be offloaded and carried across on this tramway to the port at the other side. And small boats even were hoisted out and put on the dolly itself and carried across. So it's a really big trading hub. So we've got to think of busy commerce sailors, a lot of coming and going of sailors. And what did that mean in the ancient world Well, it meant an awful lot of immorality. And that was heightened further by the fact that Corinth also was the center of uh, lots of uh, various religious expressions. And particularly, there was one temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And in her temple, there were lots of temple prostitutes where you could actually go And your worship would involve going with one of these temple prostitutes. So take the mixture of what happened because of the commerce and what happened because of the religion. And you have got an incredibly mixed cultural city. And also with that, an awful lot of immorality going on in the culture roundabout.
1: So Paul is writing to to these these Christians, these new believers then, to try and help them with the problems they're facing. What are those problems then?
0: Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right, because I suppose if I sum it up in a nutshell, what's happened is the whole of this letter is about the problem of contemporary cultural values creeping into the church. Now, the particular cultural issues was somewhat different from those that we face today, though some are still the same. So this is a great letter to read, to come to grips with God's perspective on letting cultural values creep into our church and shaping what we think and how we behave. So there's a whole number of of issues have, have crept in here. I suppose we could sum up the whole thing for me As conflict and compromise. So there's conflict all about their leaders. Which is the best leader? Who is the best speaker? Who shows the most wisdom? There were conflicts about whether it was right to take a a brother or sister in Christ to court over lawsuits. There's conflicts about spiritual gifts. So there's a real sort of feisty fighting attitude. Church has become a place where you Fight one another. Well, sadly, that's not been the last time that that happened. But of course, it should be the very last thing that should be happening in church. So there's conflict within, but there's also compromise with the culture from without. So some of the things he will touch on almost sound quite shocking to us. In chapter five, there's an issue of incest in the church which has not only been allowed to happen, but people are actually boastful and proud that they are so free in Jesus that this is how they can live. Chapter six deals with a whole list of sexually immoral behaviors, many of which are still pertinent today. Chapter seven deals with the issue of marriage and singleness. And is it better to be married or better to be single? Still an issue that's around today. Chapter eight is all about, can I eat in pagan temples? Now that's not a direct issue for us, but it's really about to what extent can I engage with the world out there and participate in what they are doing without influencing me? And where do I draw lines and say, I can't go any further. In chapter 11, there's this odd thing to us about whether women should wear head coverings or not. Again, a very cultural thing that was happening in their context. So culture really is creeping in. And while the gospel and our message always has to relate to our culture, and while we have to find language and pictures and points of identification to make the eternal gospel relevant in every culture and every generation... What we need to be careful of, this letter shows us, is beware of the culture coming in and so shaping our thinking and our practice that what we end up with is 100 miles away from Jesus, which is where this bunch had ended up.
1: Now, I guess Paul isn't saying to them, you have to cut yourself off from the world around you, because it sounds like they were... Inevitably, you know, embedded in that culture, that Greek culture, I guess, uh, to a large extent. So, so
0: what is his advice? Paul is not an isolationist. He, he's not one of these people who believes that Christians should live in bubbles. For goodness sake, this was the apostle to the Gentiles. This was the guy who courageously went into all sorts of places with the message of the gospel. But he went in with a strength in the gospel and a strength in Jesus that saw him stand in them. So there are a whole number of ways, but one of the ones, even in chapter one, divisions have come into the church through allowing in this sort of cultural emphasis on wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom, knowledge, gnosis, it was called in Greek. It often meant secret knowledge. It often meant we'll let you into the secret knowledge if you join our club. I suppose an equivalent might be like Freemasonry today, where if you are invited to join, you're given the knowledge, and then you work your way through it and get more and more knowledge that the outsiders aren't allowed to keep. Now, that sort of thinking was coming into the church. Corinth had got loads of sort of different teachers and philosophers based there with all their different schools and approaches. And they were often very partisan, opposed to one another. And that sort of attitude had spilled over into the church to the point where some of the Corinthians were saying, well, you know, I'm really for this guy. Maybe in our terms today, I really prefer it when David preaches. He really gets to the heart of it. Well, no, 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 actually... I prefer Mike. He is much more Christ-centered, whatever it might be. And we know how easy that is to slip into church today. And so Paul has to challenge them in chapter one that, for goodness sake, the only wisdom, the only knowledge that matters is Jesus. Not Paul, includes himself in this, not Peter, not Apollos or anyone else, but Jesus and so he takes them back to the heart of the gospel and that actually while the culture around them is so based on clever wisdom he says do you know what God showed his wisdom through what a cross my goodness well that's just stupid as far as both Jews and Greeks are concerned To Jews, because anyone who hung on a cross was under a curse of God. To Greeks, because they would say, what What on earth is this stupid message? And of course, it did seem so stupid in comparison to their so-called clever Greek philosophy. And so he will tell them that to both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You want to know God's power? You want to know God's wisdom? It's not through this school or that school of philosophy or this leader or that leader. It's in Jesus. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. God on a bad day is wiser than the wisest human being.
1: You've also described Corinth as a city with, how can I put it, lots of red light districts. (laughs) Yes. Uh, How does Paul advise them on dealing with temptation?
0: Well, he, he tells them, first of all, I mean, they do have to be ruthless with it. And what was happening was this was, I think we have to understand, this was so entrenched in the culture, whether it was through the sort of sailors and tradesmen that passed through, or whether it was because of this great temple of Aphrodite that dominated the city, that it was just seen as normal. And let's face it, the culture in which we live in the West in the 21st century sees sex as something completely normal it is a it's often called a recreational activity, but that's not how the Bible sees it at all. It sees it as good as a gift of God, but as something that God gives to to build together one man and one woman together in life in their relationship of marriage and so at times it's quite ruthless about it so in in chapter five where there's been the issue of the man who has had sexual relationships in an incestuous way, he tells the church quite simply to put them out of the church. In chapter six, he will remind them that while some of the Corinthians were saying, you know, well, everything's permissible for me now. I'm free. I am free in Jesus. And he'll say to them, well, yes, you're free, but you're actually free to do right. And he has this quite powerful little saying. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. And so he does it both by challenge, reminding them what God says, but he also does it by appeal. He reminds them that their very bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Come on, guys, the Holy Spirit now lives within you. Are you going to take something that's Holy like that, and now go and give that body to some prostitute, whether in the red light district or in the temple. No, come on, flee from sexual immorality, he will say to them. So, by warning, challenge, but also appeal that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, and so we should be looking to use our bodies in ways that glorify God, not just that satisfy passing fleshly needs.
1: It's just dawned on me that there's a particular chapter in this letter that will be read out at weddings very often. I think it's the 13th chapter.
0: Yes, a really well-known passage where Paul talks about love. And, of course, now he's meaning something very, very different to the sexual love that had dominated the lives of so many of these people and that they were still allowing to carry on in their church. They were still saying, well, the culture does it around. You know, we've we've got to keep up with culture. You know, I have heard that argument so many times still today. But in chapter 13, Paul outlines to them what true love is all about. And the interesting thing is that while sexual love can so often be, and certainly was in their context, about getting The whole of chapter 13 is about love as something that gives. You know, I still think that's a challenge for us today. When we say we love someone, that is characterized then by giving, giving, giving to them. And the trust that they too, if they love you, are going to give, give, give to you. And so he outlines what love is all about. There's these... Lovely verses where he says love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. And you know what? To do all of those, you need at least one other person. I am the best person in the world at being patient with myself. I can be incredibly kind to myself. And I have never once envied myself. But, you know, put me with one other person. Put me with you, David, and suddenly I have a challenge. And love is about giving. That's why it's so often read, as you said, rightly, at Christian weddings. Because what the husband and wife are doing is entering a covenant where they are going to give themselves to one another. And it is in the giving of ourselves in love to one another, that we truly find what love's all about, rather than the get, satisfy my needs now in the highly sexualized way that the Corinthians had been deceived into following their culture rather than following this way of Jesus, this more excellent way, as Paul sums it up in chapter 13. I think as we've looked at all these different books of the Bible, we've stopped sometimes
1: and realize that there are certain sections where there's an emphasis where there's more time spent on on a particular topic and is it true that Paul spends quite a bit of time on on the gifts of the holy spirit in this letter
0: yes absolutely chapters 12 to 14 he gives to this whole issue of the gifts of the holy spirit now what why does he give such a lot of time to this well it's because they weren't getting it right Again, they were getting very worldly, it was very me centered. So their use of the gifts were all about me and what I get out of it and how I feel when I use my gift. And so what Paul wants to do, and and this is interesting, never once does he say to this church where they they'd really messed up in their use of gifts, never once does he say, Now stop it, stop it, stop it. That's enough of this gift stuff. You know, you we really don't need this. Anymore. The church doesn't need this. We're established now. No. He encourages them that, you know, they really are using the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But what he does is he corrects how they are using it. And just as we were talking about love being for the other, so he makes clear in these chapters that the use of gifts is for the good of the other and not for the good of me. So he'll use, he's got a really powerful illustration in chapter 12 of the church being like a a human body. And so he outlines how, you know, come on, look at your own body. You know, it's not just got one part. It's not all a mouth, is it? Or not all eyes. You actually need all the different parts. And actually some of the parts that at first sight seem a little bit less important, turn out to be more important than others. And just as the human body needs all these parts and all these parts are equally essential, so it is with you, he says. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you are a part in it. So he's using this picture to bring home to them that there's no one gift more important than the others. All of them are needed. There's no one person more important than the other every single person and every single gift is needed if the church is going to be what jesus wants them to be
1: just clarify what the gifts of the holy spirit are
0: well i need to say that there are several lists of gifts of the spirit They're not just here in 1 Corinthians 12. We also get a list in Ephesians 4. And in Romans chapter 12, we get passing references to gifts. For example, here's a gift that not many people ask for. But in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, he talks about the gift, same word, the charisma, the gift of the spirit of celibacy, of staying single for Jesus' sake. But the gifts that he talks about here in chapter 12 uh, he lists a number of them and he talks about the gift or the word of wisdom, uh, a word of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, the ability to work miracles, prophecy, discerning between different spirits, the ability to speak in tongues, a Holy Spirit given language and the ability to interpret those tongues.
1: I'm interested in the choice of the word gifts.
0: Yeah, it, it, you know, and sometimes we hone in on that. And in fact, Paul talks in chapter 12 and verse 4. He says, There are different kinds of gifts. That's the word charisma that many of us will be familiar with, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service, diakonia, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, energimata. So, three different Greek words to describe the same thing these are gifts the holy spirit gives and they're his working through us but the purpose is service so uh, gifts are these things that drop out of heaven well do you know what sometimes they are sometimes they simply come out of heaven so let's take one example for someone who is able to speak in the Holy Spirit language, in the gift of tongues, you know, one moment they don't have it, the next moment they do. But some of these gifts are also part of who God has made us and what grow in us in life. So the gift of Holy Spirit wisdom, this is not just ordinary wisdom, it's that sort of supernatural wisdom that's needed just at that moment to help make the right decision. Like when James stood up in the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, there are two different views and they're not sure what to do. And James stands up and says, this is what I think. And everybody says, you got it. He had a Holy spirit gift of wisdom there, but it may have been that that wisdom had been growing in him throughout his life. I know that one of my gifts is the gift of teaching, not listed here in this, but talked about in Ephesians 4. And that's been a mixture, to be honest, of human desire and skill and training. I was a school teacher for a period of time, and that fed back into my preaching, and my preaching fed back into my teaching. And yet I know that there's an anointing of the Holy Spirit to also be able to communicate So I don't think these gifts are as watertight as we make them. And and very often people will talk about my my gift It is really only very practical. You know, I'm really good at cooking meals for people and blessing them with that. But you've, you've got the gift of preaching. That's very different. And I think Paul would say, no, these are all expressions of the same one and Holy Spirit. By the way, I don't think these gifts are exclusive. He lists nine gifts in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. I've already said he lists some uh, in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4 and there are others in passing and there are others in other letters in the New Testament, in Peter's for example. And some of these lists are similar and some overlap and I think they are examples rather than the totality of all that there is.
1: And presumably in a sense these gifts are if you like, the oil to make the whole thing work in the church and the way the church connects with its community.
0: Yeah, that's a really good picture, David, there, the oil that makes things work because, you know, without these gifts, without without Christ's gifts to us through the Holy Spirit, really, how different are we to the Rotary Club down the street? The Rotary Club does some great stuff into the community and other groups like that. They make real impact in the community so what is it that we have that makes what we do different and it is these gifts of christ through the holy spirit that lift these to a different level and are done for different purpose because of course while all these gifts are there for the good of the church that's not the end product in itself the church is there in order to share the gospel of christ And still in this day and age in which we live, perhaps even more so in our culture, the need for us to be able to share the gospel, not just with words. There are many words out there that people can choose from. But to have those words backed up with at times demonstrations of God's love and power, whether that is making a meal for a neighbor who is in need, or whether that is bringing a word of prophecy to someone all these can impact unbelievers. In fact, in in uh, chapter fourteen, Paul actually has an example of where someone is is bringing a word in a church meeting, and there's an outsider there, a visitor there, who suddenly, out of what he hears, feels like all the secrets of his heart are laid bare, and he says, "My goodness, there is a God. He's real. What do I need to do to be saved?" And I've actually experienced that today, where People have come into a church meeting for the first time ever. And someone has had uh, what we call a word of knowledge, knowing something about someone that they couldn't have known in any way other than through the Holy Spirit. And it's almost like they had read that person's diary. And this person has said, my goodness, that's me. How did you know that? And you were able to say, well, it was the spirit of Jesus who told us. And he told us that because he knows you and he loves you and he wants to share life with you. So don't just think of these gifts in terms of using them in your home group or in your church. These are gifts for out there in the world to be able to help us impact that world with the gospel of Jesus. Just as we conclude, I'm struck
1: by the way in which this is, it seems a very personal letter from Paul to, you know, real people that were dealing with real issues. I I suspect he names certain people as well. You know, this isn't just Paul on his own and this sort of anonymous uh, group of believers.
0: No, I mean, he feels passionately about them. Remember, he had established this church, so he knew many of them, of course. By name, he had worked with them, he'd laughed with them, he'd cried with them, he'd cared for them, he'd mentored them. And so what we feel in this letter is passion. And, you know, as you're reading this letter, look for his passion. At times, his outrage with them like in chapter five, where they're allowing behavior that he says even the world wouldn't accept was all right. And, and and you're saying you're so free in Jesus, you can accept it. So there is great passion in this letter. Why? Because he loves them. And, you know, sometimes loving people means having the courage to lovingly tell them the truth and to tell them what no one else would say to them. And that's why this is a great letter. It is not just a letter of doctrine. It's a letter that's full of passion, but also a letter that is full of appeal for us to be the church of Jesus. And rather than contemporary culture coming in and shaping our values, to be a people who are so empowered with Jesus's Holy Spirit that we go out empowered with him and shape their values to become more like those of Jesus as we go out and share the good news with them. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.